As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello again, my fellow Flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. Today is the 23rd episode of PCPC, and boy, do we have an exciting episode to share with you today. We will be taking a look at Rocky Mountain Airways Flight 217, a scheduled flight from Steamboat Springs to Denver, Colorado, on the evening of December 4th, 1978. We have a few interviews lined up later in the show, one with a retired Delta captain and author named Harrison Jones, who wrote an excellent book on Flight 217 called Miracle on Buffalo Pass. We'll be having another chat with an individual whose identity I won't reveal just yet. I'm going to keep you all in suspense. I'll just say this person had a unique perspective on the flight. Thanks to all of you for your continuous support of the podcast. We've been mentioning lately that we have a Patreon account, and with each episode we release, more and more people seem to be signing up. It's so cool and generous of you guys. We really appreciate it. You vote with your dollar in life, so if you dig PCPC and want to support it, keep it afloat. Go to patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod, and you can sign up as a fellow flyer for as little as a dollar a month. Thank you for all the kind reviews as well. I read them all, and days where I'm feeling a bit unmotivated, a good review will kick me in the butt, and suddenly I'll churn out six hours of productive work on the podcast. So keep them coming, people. Wind in the sails, wind in the sails. On the podcast today, we are joined by a humanitarian, a philosopher, a future president of the yet-to-be-formed one-world government of planet Earth, Miss Tess Andrade. How are you doing, Tess? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for uh, illuminating things about myself that I didn't even know. Yeah, you're impressive. Uh, <laughs> what's it like being Tess Andrade in late May 2020? Oh, so you want to take a walk in my shoes for a change? Yeah, I'll give them a shot. All right, well, I'll take them off right now, but I'm warning you, I'm not wearing socks, so you might find some moisture in there. <laughs> Well, what have you been up to? I have been trying to keep busy. Um, by the way, this is the highlight reel. I'm skipping over the parts where I sit in a darkened room and stare into space. Which we've all been engaged in, I'm of sure. Of course, yes. Um, but I've been... The other day, I planted some tomato plants. Nice. Um, and they're looking pretty good. And I got this really cool dresser from a friend 
that she gave me. And so I sanded the top of the dresser and repainted it. That's pretty impressive. That's very home and garden of you. Uh, Yeah, I have to say, I really felt like Tim Allen in that moment. Um, It's looking pretty good. Good Brought it into the old bedroom and it's really, uh, it's brightening up the place, I would say. That's good work. What have you been watching? Anything compelling? I've actually been on an Alfred Hitchcock kick lately. Um, I grew up watching those movies with my mom, and I'm revisiting all of my favorites. Do you have a favorite Hitchcock film? Yes. Hands down, it's got to be Rear Window. That's a great movie. I think North by Northwest would be a close second for me. Cool. I like Rear Window. I feel like you just never leave that set the entire time, and it's amazing. You feel like you're watching a play. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool how compelling the suspenses considering the fact that you don't leave that room yeah what about you what have you been up to well i finally got around to putting out the dark matters record if you like the intro song outro song to the pcpc show it's from an old band that i used to be in called the dark matters we recorded an album with steve albini in chicago in 2014 and never released it but on may 12th it finally came out on all the streaming services It's called Greetings from a Scorched Earth, so if you're interested, you can find it out there. And I've also been watching all the Star Trek films. Oh, I like that. It's been released from the vaults. Yeah, finally had the time to go through and find out which files we liked, which songs we liked, and we put it out, so... I, uh, Star Trek 2, Wrath of Khan, very good. Star Trek 4, Voyage Home, also pretty good. First movie and third movie, not my cup of tea. What would you say for someone that's never gotten into Star Trek? Is there anything, a, a starter pack that you'd recommend for? Star Trek 2 is just great. Hop on in there. Hop on in? Okay. Well, Tuss, we had some sad news a few days ago. On Friday, May 22nd, 2020, Pakistan International Airlines Flight 8303, a scheduled flight from Lahore to Jinnah International Airport in Karachi, Pakistan, crashed a few kilometers from the airport in Karachi. The Airbus A320 crashed into the Model Colony neighborhood just to the northeast of the airport. 97 of the 99 human beings on Flight 8303 died in the accident. There were two survivors. Zafar Masood, the president of the Bank of Punjab, was one of the survivors. Another passenger, Mohammed Zubair, also survived. In a brief interview with media, Mohammed said no one was aware that the plane was about to crash. They were flying the plane in a smooth manner. He said that suddenly there was a violent shaking of the plane, and the captain came over the intercom and said that the landing may be troublesome. Muhammad lost consciousness during the crash, and when he came to, he said, I could hear the screams from all directions, kids and adults. All I could see was fire. I opened my seatbelt and saw some light. I went towards the light. I had to jump down about 10 feet to get to safety. Flight 8303 took off from Lahore at 1.05 p.m. for the scheduled 90-minute flight to Karachi. It will be several months before any official report is released, but initial reports in the media have stated that the flight came in for a first attempt at landing and experienced a technical issue. It's reported that the landing gear was still retracted on this first attempt and that scratch marks were discovered on the runway at Karachi Airport at the 4,500 feet and 5,500 feet markers. This has led the Civil Aviation Authority to be concerned that the two engines may have come into contact with the runway and possibly sustained damage at these points during the first attempt to land. The flight crew then performed a go-around, and in a brief clip of the CVR that was released, the pilot of Flight 8303 said, We are proceeding direct, sir. We have lost the engines. 
The air traffic controller then says, confirm your attempt on belly, to which the pilot responds, sir, mayday, 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 Pakistan 8303, and then the recording ends. The plane crashed at 2.39 p.m. in the densely populated neighborhood outside the airport. Pictures that were taken of the plane before the crash showed that the landing gear was not down. So the combination of those pictures, the scrapes on the runway, and the controller saying, confirm your attempt on belly, seems to point out that flight 8303 was having trouble getting their landing gear down. Also, you can clearly hear the pilot say that he lost power to the engines. So we know that they were having engine issues. Pictures of the plane show that the ram air turbine was engaged, which is a backup wind turbine used to provide electricity for control systems in case of engine failure. Eight people on the ground were injured, but luckily no reports have mentioned any deaths to residents that were on the ground during the crash. 25 homes were damaged in the model colony neighborhood. The crash occurred while many residents were away from home at a nearby mosque engaged in their weekly Friday prayers. The A320 plane had logged 47,100 flight hours, and Airbus has stated that it will provide technical assistance to the investigators in France and Pakistan. So Tess, it's a troubling story out of Pakistan, as if there wasn't enough suffering and pain in 2020. The hits keep on coming. Be interesting to see exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah. I'm really curious to find out. Um, I'm so thankful that no one in that neighborhood was harmed because it seemed like the plane crashed into a pretty densely populated area. It did. And I think it's a miracle. There was two survivors from the plane, too. So that's a miracle. It's a miracle that less people were injured and no one was reportedly killed on the ground. So I'm thankful for that. But it's still an incredibly sad story because 97 human beings lost their lives. Well, we'll keep you posted on this accident as more details are released in the upcoming weeks and months ahead. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what the report says. Yeah, me too. BetterHelp is our sponsor for the podcast today. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod to get 10% off your first month. BetterHelp is the world's largest online counseling service where you can meet with a therapist over video chat, message them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Again, if you're interested, check out betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod to get your discount. We started this podcast as a way of exploring our anxieties surrounding flying. We figured that if we learn more about how planes fly and how crashes of the past led to modifications that improve the safety of air travel today... Some of our fears about traveling on planes might be tamped down a bit. We recognize that what we discuss is a tragedy in the lives of many human beings out there. Many of these accidents we discuss led to the death of someone's brother, sister, mother, or father, and we never want to be disrespectful or cavalier when talking about that. We just think it's worth discussing how these accidents of the past took place and learning how each accident contributed to building the safe air travel system that we enjoy today. You ready to get started, Tess? Let's get started. Rocky Mountain Airways Flight 217 was a scheduled flight from Route County Airport in Steamboat Springs, Colorado to Stapleton International Airport in Denver, Colorado on the evening of Monday, December 4th, 1978. Rocky Mountain Airways was founded by Gordon Autry in 1963. The airline was initially known as Vail Airways, and then underwent the name change to Rocky Mountain Airways in 1968. The airline focused on servicing commuter flights to primarily Colorado, Wyoming, Nebraska, and surrounding areas. In the fall of 1971, Rocky Mountain Airways started prepping the airport at Steamboat Springs for new service. 
At the time, another operator had tied up most of the airport, wasn't willing to share space with anybody else. So the founder, Gordon Autry, convinced the commissioners of Route County to give at least his airline the crosswind, dirt surface runway that wasn't in high demand. After securing access to the one dirt runway, Rocky Mountain Airways then had the added task of getting this airport up to a high enough standard to start bringing passengers in. They had to construct their own terminal building. They had to dig a well for water and sewage. It's almost as if they had to build an airport from scratch, paving walkways and a parking lot. On January 1st, 1972, Rocky Mountain Airways started servicing flights to their new destination, Steamboat Springs. In the winter spring of 1972, the paving wasn't quite completed, so passengers would often have to walk on wooden floorboards to avoid stepping in the mud that surrounded the terminal building. Finally, in the summer of 1972, the paving was completed, and Rocky Mountain Airways gained access to the other runway, the paved runway as well. Steamboat Springs is a popular ski destination in the winter months, so there's an uptick in demand for flights during ski season. Steamboat is also home to a number of geothermal hot springs as well, perfect for relaxing after a long day on the slopes. In late 1978, Rocky Mountain Airways had a fleet of seven planes. The airline had six de Havilland Canada Twin Otter planes and one de Havilland Dash 7 plane. These de Havilland planes are great for flying into mountain communities where runways are short. These short takeoff and landing Twin Otter planes were designed to get airborne without needing a long roll for takeoff and also could descend steeply for landing without gaining too much excess speed during descent. So these planes didn't need super long runways, they only needed 2,500 feet, and thus they were appropriate for the short runways you'd find in mountainous regions like the Rockies. Rocky Mountain Airways flew over a million passengers to ski areas in these 19 passenger capacity planes. They even modified their planes attaching little ski pods to the bottom of the aircraft where passengers could place their ski equipment, and these ski pods received FAA approval. The plane used for Flight 217 was one of their DHC-6 Series 300 Twin Otter planes. Passenger capacity was 19, with single seats on the left of the aisle, double seats on the right. The passenger cabin was unpressurized, so these twin otter planes were equipped with oxygen masks so passengers could breathe above 10,000 feet. This plane that was used for Flight 217 had 15,145 flight hours, was manufactured in 1973, and was delivered to Rocky Mountain Airways on November 13, 1973. The captain of Flight 217 was Captain Scott Klopfenstein. At the time of the incident, Captain Klopfenstein was 29 years old. He was hired by Rocky Mountain Airways in September 1974, so he had been with the company for over four years. Captain Klopfenstein was interviewing with American Airlines at the time, thinking about making the big jump to a major world airline. He had 7,340 flight hours, 3,904 hours flying the DHC-6. So he was a very experienced pilot flying this model of aircraft. The first officer of Flight 217 was First Officer Gary Coleman. First Officer Coleman was 34 years old at the time of the incident. He was a certified flight instructor. First Officer Coleman had 3,816 flight hours, 320 hours flying the DHC-6. First Officer Coleman had worked two flights the previous day, December 3rd, finishing up around 8 p.m., 
Captain Klopfenstein had been off the previous two days before Flight 217. There were 20 passengers on Flight 217 with the two pilots in the cockpit. A total of 22 human beings were on board. Captain Scott Klopfenstein and First Officer Gary Coleman arrived at Stapleton International Airport in Denver at 12.30 p.m. on December 4, 1978. Their first flight of the day was scheduled to be Flight 212, a flight that was to go from Denver to Granby County Airport and then continue on to Steamboat Springs. Flight 212 takes off at 2.22 p.m. from Stapleton Airport, but the plane runs into strong headwinds and can't climb above the mountains to the west of Denver, so the flight is aborted and they return to Stapleton and land safely. After waiting around for an hour and refueling the plane, at 4.26 p.m., the flight crew takes off again on Flight 216, a nonstop flight from Denver to Steamboat Springs. Again, the flight crew runs into strong headwinds, but they're able to safely climb in altitude this time. For Flight 216, Captain Klopfenstein flies the plane. Though the flight is smooth and they don't hit any turbulence, they still experience strong headwinds that are blowing upwards of 70 knots, around 80 miles an hour. Since the plane flies at 150 knots into headwinds that are blowing at 70 knots, their ground speed's only 80 knots. Thus, the flight takes almost two hours from Denver to Steamboat. As Flight 216 descends into the Steamboat Springs area, they fly through some moderate icing conditions between 15,000 and 10,000 feet. The de-icing systems are used and work properly, clearing surfaces without a problem. The descent and approach are routine, and Flight 216 lands at Route County Airport at 6.21 p.m. After taxiing to the terminal and shutting down the engines, the passengers of Flight 216 disembark from the aircraft. Bags are unloaded, the planes refueled, the passenger oxygen tanks are refilled as well. Captain Klopfenstein heads inside the terminal to call Denver Air Route Traffic Control Center and the Rocky Mountains Airways dispatcher to plan for his next flight, Flight 217. With air traffic control from Denver on the phone, Captain Klopfenstein hammers out the plan for his next flight. He calls for an instrument flight rules flight plan from Steamboat to the Gill VOR. Gill is north of Stapleton Airport in Denver. They'll head east, taking the Victor 101 airway at a cruising altitude of 17,000 feet. Once above Gill, the plan is to fly visual flight rules into Stapleton. Next, he talks with company dispatch. He informs them that on his previous flight, Flight 216, he experienced some heavy icing on descent but he still considers flying into Steamboat to be safe. He tells dispatch to tell other pilots heading into Steamboat to wait until they're above the city before they begin their descent. While Captain Klopfenstein is making these calls and plans inside the terminal, First Officer Gary Coleman is overseeing the plane. He handles the pre-flight inspection, monitors the refueling of the plane, and First Officer Coleman notices about three-quarters of an inch of ice has built up on some of the unprotected surfaces of the plane. First Officer Coleman takes off some of the ice with his hand. He also uses a broomstick to smack the ice and crack it, making it easier to remove. Flight 217, our flight we'll be discussing today from Steamboat to Denver, was originally scheduled to take off at 4.45 p.m., so now at 6.30 p.m., many of the passengers have already been waiting around at the airport for hours, waiting for this delayed plane to arrive so they can get on with their lives, get home to Denver, or catch their connecting flights at Stapleton International. 
So there's a level of anxiousness and anticipation from passengers that this flight gets loaded up quickly and gets in the sky soon. Rocky Mountain Airways only has a fleet of seven planes, and usually all seven planes finish up at Denver Airport at the end of each day. This makes scheduling easier, the pilots can sleep in their own beds each night, and all the planes can undergo required maintenance at Hangar 6 of Stapleton International throughout the night. To keep a fleet this small and still have a busy airline, Rocky Mountain Airways has to be very efficient about how they use their planes. Each plane average 11 and a half flight hours each day. So the best thing for the company is if all the planes can get back to Denver safely each night. No scheduling for the next day will get messed up and maintenance can take place. The two pilots had a brief discussion during their previous flight wondering if the company back in Denver might cancel Flight 217 because of the wind and ice conditions. But once they land safely at Steamboat and the weather appears to start clearing up, they have no reason to think it would be unsafe to fly back to Denver. Around 6.30 p.m., the weather was reported as overcast at 2,000 feet, light winds, 6 miles visibility with temperatures in the 20s. So given the fact that they just flew safely from Denver to Steamboat, The weather seemed to be clearing up and clouds were parting and the moon was visible in the sky. They've got all these passengers that have been waiting around in a terminal all day to fly to Denver. And the best thing for the company is to get this plane back to Stapleton. Given all these conditions, Captain Klopfenstein, Denver Air Traffic Control, and the company dispatch all agree that it's safe for Flight 217 to fly. Yes, they were aware some icing was going on in the skies above, but the plane was outfitted with de-icing boots on the leading surfaces of the wings, a de-icing system for their propeller blades on the engine, and a heated windshield. A little ice forming isn't the end of the world to them, given the fact that they have all these de-icing systems, so it's decided to go ahead with the flight. Finally, after hours of patiently waiting, passengers start boarding for Flight 217. There's 20 passengers, including one infant. Bags are loaded into the cargo hold. There's a cargo hold in the rear passenger cabin, and the nose of the plane also has a small cargo hold. There's no autopilot on this Twin Otter plane. Pilots have to earn that paycheck and fly the entire time. Pilots that fly these autopilotless planes have a nickname. They're called Stick and Rudder Guys. Stick and Rudder Guys, I like that. Yeah, it's catchy. So with the plane full, the two pilots buckle their lap belts. There are no shoulder harnesses on this aircraft. Engine start occurs without issue. De-icing systems are checked. Pedo heat and windshield heat is checked. Route County Airport was an uncontrolled airport at the time, meaning pilots are trusted to use their own eyes and judgment to maintain separation with other aircraft. Pilots decide when it's safe to take off and taxi. Captain Kloppenstein taxis Flight 217 onto the runway. This flight is scheduled to be a short 45-minute ride from Steamboat to Denver. The captain says to his first officer, You have the airplane, Gary. At 6.55 p.m. on Monday, December 4, 1978, Rocky Mountain Airways Flight 217 takes off from Route County Airport outside Steamboat Springs en route to Stapleton International. The flight takes off headed west initially. The pilots want to climb to 10,000 feet before turning back to go east. They want the plane to climb enough in altitude in the west so it can clear the mountains to the east of Steamboat. As the plane reaches 10,000 feet, both pilots put on their oxygen masks, and First Officer Gary Coleman, the pilot flying, 
turns the plane to the east. Captain Klopfenstein is handling the radio communications as Flight 217 passes through 11,000 feet on its way to its planned cruising altitude of 17,000 feet, the passengers can see the lights of Steamboat Springs radiating below. The pilots in the cockpit can see the moon and stars above them, and at first it seems as though they're in for a routine flight to Denver. Occasionally, the plane passes through a cloud, and as they are climbing through 11,500 feet, the rate of climb starts decreasing. Flight 217 encounters some light icing, but the de-icing boots on the wings keeps the leading surfaces clear. The flight is still gaining in altitude, albeit slowly. They pass through 12,000 feet, then 12,500, but once they reach 13,000 feet, the plane won't climb anymore. First Officer Coleman inches the throttles forward to get the plane to climb in altitude, but the plane stays at 13,000 feet. Captain Klopfenstein then tries his luck and takes over control of the plane to see if he can get the plane to start climbing, and he doesn't have any success either. At the moment, the plane is safely flying over Buffalo Pass, where their minimum to fly is 13,000, but it's headed towards the Cater Intersection Waypoint. At the Cater Intersection, the minimum safe altitude to fly is 16,000 feet. So these guys have a problem. The plane's stuck at 13,000 feet. It won't climb past 13,000, Strong tailwinds are increasing their ground speed, speeding up Flight 217's approach to its next waypoint at Cater, where they need to be at 16,000 feet to safely fly and clear the terrain below. With the throttles pushed forward, the plane won't climb. Raise the nose of the plane and you lose airspeed and don't climb. So the pilots quickly decide that the safest option is just to turn around and go back to Steamboat. To get to Denver, you have to clear the mountains, Plane's stuck at 13,000 feet, so it's time to go back to Steamboat. At 7.14 p.m., 19 minutes after takeoff, Captain Klompenstein radios over to Denver Center. We're going to have to return to Steamboat. Denver Center replies, Rocky Mountain 217, what's your position now? The captain responds, we're on the 340 radio of Kremling on the north side. Denver Center radios back, Roger, Rocky Mountain 217, you're cleared to Steamboat to cruise 17,000. A minute later at 7.15 p.m., Denver Center says, Rocky Mountain 217, proceed direct, steamboat, at your discretion, let me know what's your altitude now. Captain Klompenstein answers 13,000. Then Denver Center radios again, Rocky Mountain 217, Roger, change to advisory frequency is approved, report your cancellation or ground time on this frequency or through dispatch. At 7.17 p.m., Denver Center then contacts the station agent at Steamboat Springs, and informs them that Flight 217 is returning to their airport, not continuing on to Denver as originally planned. A few minutes later, there's more communication with the plane. Denver Center radios, Rocky Mountain 217, you still on this frequency? Flight 217 responds, yes, still here. Now as Flight 217 has made its turn and is heading back to Steamboat, those tailwinds the plane was riding on have turned into headwinds. The plane flies through the occasional cloud, then a little open air, another cloud, then clear air. And in one of these clear air moments, First Officer Coleman sees a black cloud in front of the plane, a black cloud with white stripes immediately ahead of them. Seeing that it was too late to avoid it, Flight 217 has no choice but to fly straight into the top of this black cloud. 
Captain Klompenstein, who had been focused on his instruments, looks up and out of his front windscreen, and he sees a scary-looking dark cloud dead ahead of him, and the captain shouts, Oh shit, my airplane! Flight 217 enters the cloud and immediately slows down due to the heavy icing. It's icing so heavily that even though the aircraft's de-icing systems are working properly and keeping ice off the leading surfaces of the wings, ice is still accumulating on the wings behind these leading surfaces, changing the shape of the wings and increasing weight, decreasing lift. Ice is also accumulating on other unprotected surfaces of the plane. Flight 217 suddenly goes from being unable to climb above 13,000 to slowly descending at times at a rate of 800 feet per minute. Anytime the pilots pull up to try and stop the descent, they lose airspeed, and the plane's already on the verge of a stall. At this moment, the plane's maintaining only 90 knots, flying into a headwind, barely making any progress back to steamboat. Flight 217 is just battling to stay in the sky. The flaps are then increased to 10 to allow the plane to maintain lift at this lower speed, Throttles are pushed forward and the engines are humming, but Flight 217 is almost caught on like a mid-air treadmill. All this energy is being exerted by the engines and pilots, but they're not really gaining any ground, getting any closer to steamboat due to the headwinds and the added weight from the ice. For almost 20 minutes, the pilots battle to keep this plane in the sky. At 7.39 p.m., 44 minutes after takeoff, Captain Klompenstein radios to Denver, want you to be aware that we're having a little problem here maintaining altitude and proceeding direct steamboat beacon. Denver sender responds, Roger, what's your position now? The captain answers, we're on Victor 101, crossing the 335 of Kremling. Then Denver sender asks, Rocky Mountain 217, okay, sir, can I give you any assistance? Captain Klompenstein answers, not now, the time 7.40 p.m. The pilots aren't positive of their exact altitude at this point. They've been in the sky for 44 minutes, and they don't have a radar altimeter. Their altimeter requires them to get regular updates on the barometric pressure in the area from control center, and they haven't received one update since taking off from steamboat. Again, the plane flies into another area of intense icing. The clouds are dense, and the pilots can't even see the edges of their wings. The aircraft's de-icing system's working as hard as it can, but the icing is so severe that it can't keep up. Ice starts accumulating underneath the wings of the plane. Despite all these dense clouds and headwinds and icing, Flight 217 is still inching towards Steamboat. As the plane hovers above Buffalo Pass, Captain Klompenstein notices that the plane's made some progress, slowly creeping its way to the west, and he says, I think we've got it made. Seconds after this brief moment of optimism, First Officer Coleman sees a stunning blue flash of light to the right of the aircraft. Initially, First Officer Coleman thought that a bolt of lightning had struck the right wing of the plane. Suddenly, the plane's lights illuminated the white-covered, snowy ground below. First Officer Coleman pushes the throttles completely forward. Ahead of the plane, he sees a dark area, and to the right, he sees white. Both Captain Klompenstein and First Officer Coleman kick the right rudder to steer the aircraft towards the white area below. At 7.45 p.m. on December 4, 1978, Rocky Mountain Airways Flight 217 slams into the deep snow on the ground along Buffalo Pass at an elevation of 10,530 feet. The force of the crash breaks Captain Klompenstein's seat, 
seat breaks free from the floor and plunges the captain forward into the instrument panel. Captain Klomfenstein was gripping the control column with such might, trying to keep control of the aircraft and guide it to a safe spot, that he broke both of his arms on impact. Captain's also knocked unconscious. First Officer Coleman is also thrown forward into the instrument panel and knocked out as well. Again, there were no shoulder harnesses on the seats in the cockpit. As the plane impacts the ground, the right wing separates from the rest of the aircraft. The left wing and left engine also break off from the rest of the plane as the plane skids forward, leaving two holes in the fuselage where the left and right wing used to be. Debris is found 200 feet away from the initial point of impact. As the fuselage comes to a rest, it rolls, and it comes to a stop on its right side. Inside the plane, many passenger seats have separated from the floor, and a messy, jumbled pile of injured passengers and their broken seats fills the fuselage that is now turned on its right side. The plane's battery is still connected to the lighting, so the cabin's illuminated. Upon impact, the windshield in the cockpit shatters, and the left side of the cockpit is ripped open. First Officer Coleman seated in the right-hand seat, and snow fills the right side of the cockpit as the plane skids across the ground. First Officer Coleman is completely surrounded and covered with snow, except for his left arm, which sticks out of the mass of snow. Flight 217 hits the ground going at around 40 knots, with an airspeed around 90, flying into headwinds around 50. Luckily, as the plane crashes with the nose slightly up, it roughly matches the slope of the hill it impacts, minimizing damage to a degree. The Twin Otter plane was equipped with an emergency locator transmitter that was designed to emit an emergency signal if it senses the G-force of an impact. Once Flight 217 impacts the ground, this ELT sends out its emergency signal. The force of the crash tore open the left side of the cockpit. So now as the plane lies on its right side, a cold wind blows frigid air into the cockpit and fuselage. There's holes in the side of the plane, and outside of the plane there's blizzard conditions. There's heavy snow, and it's reported that the temperatures factoring in the wind chill dip as low as 50 below. The Denver Control Center, they've been trying to contact Flight 217 to no avail. They ask other planes to try and make contact with the flight, and they have no success either. Now, assuming that Flight 217 has crashed, Denver Center asks pilots in the vicinity to report if they see any sign of the crash, and emergency services were told to be prepared to receive crash victims because communications with Flight 217 had been lost. An Air Force Reserve C-130 flying above Steamboat Springs, detects the emergency signal from Flight 217's ELT. doesn't get an exact location of the plane, but instead a very general area where the signal's coming from, near Walden, Colorado. The Air Force contacts the Colorado Wing of Civil Air Patrol to assist in the rescue search. Since the weather's so awful, an air search is out of the question until morning, but ground crews are quickly assembled. One of the passengers of Flight 217 is 20-year-old John Pratt. Pratt broke his nose and has a chipped tooth from the accident, but he quickly realizes that in comparison to a lot of his fellow passengers, he's in pretty good shape. Pratt was an Eagle Scout in his youth, so he has some experience at living in the mountains, being resourceful, and he had some survivalist training skills. The first thing Pratt does after the crash is try and get the passenger door open. Since the fuselage is resting on its right side, the left door of the plane is basically on the ceiling now. 
It's like trying to push open an overhead hatch door on a submarine. The trouble is the stairs are attached to the door and the door is very heavy. Gravity's pulling down on it. Full of adrenaline, John Pratt eventually pushes the door upward towards the heavens and successfully flings it open. Pratt pulls himself out of the fuselage and goes to the back of the plane and starts unloading all the baggage. A 19-year-old on the plane that also has minor injuries with some cuts to his face, named Vern Bell, hops out of the plane and helps Pratt. Both Pratt and Bell root through the luggage and take all the clothing they can find and throw it through the passenger door so the wounded and cold passengers inside the fuselage can get warm. Passengers inside the fuselage also use clothing and pieces of luggage to try and plug up any holes in the plane to protect themselves from the elements. Two passengers, Luann and Jeff Mercer, were heading to Denver to get a connecting flight to Florida where they were going to get married. Luann had her wedding dress with her, and this wedding dress is used to plug up a hole in the airplane. Pratt and Bell take the empty luggage and they put it back in the cargo hold at the back of the plane to serve as insulation. A woman passenger in a state of shock comes out of the plane and asks Pratt and Bell, we aren't going to slide down the hill, are we? After reassuring and trying to calm the woman down, they move an injured man and the woman who's in shock into the cargo hold where there's more space to lay down, and the door to the cargo hold is closed to protect them from the elements. Inside the fuselage, passengers are moaning, crying out in pain, occasionally thrashing or kicking as some of them sustain serious head injuries. One of the passengers on flight 217 is an eight-month-old baby named Matt. During the crash, Matt's mother is knocked unconscious. A woman at the back of the plane finds Matt on the ground and says, Hey, I found this kid. Where'd this kid come from? Another passenger, Maureen Redman, that saw Matt and his mother during the flight, takes over care of Matt after realizing his mother's unconscious. She oversees caring for Matt throughout the whole night. Meanwhile, on the outside of the plane, Pratt and Bell are these two college-age kids that basically take on the roles of commanders of this survival situation. They get into everybody's luggage and get everyone clothes. Pratt notices there isn't enough room in the fuselage. The injured are just laying on top of one another, causing each other discomfort and pain. So he decides to start moving a few of the injured into the rear cargo hold to make more room. He gets a passenger that only had minor injuries named Roger to sit in the rear cargo hold and look after these severely injured men in the back. Whenever the cargo door is closed, the light goes off. So Roger, that's overseeing the men, takes an empty travel shampoo bottle and jams it into the door so the light stays on. Pratt and Bell then go through the fuselage and take any loose, empty seats and throw them out of the plane to create more room on the inside. Luann Mercer, the woman that was heading to Florida to get married, has her leg caught under some broken seats. So Pratt lifts with all his might and frees her leg. Pratt goes into the cockpit and finds the captain unconscious, so he cuts the captain's lap belt and moves the captain into the rear cargo hold. Next, Pratt goes back to the cockpit to see if he can get on their radio, to get on some emergency channel, maybe radio for help. While he's looking for the radio by digging through the snow with his hands, he notices that First Officer Coleman, that was completely covered with snow except for his left arm, moves. Pratt had assumed First Officer Coleman was dead, but after seeing him move, he frantically starts digging at the snow to try and free the First Officer. He can't get the First Officer completely out of the snow, but he digs the snow off the First Officer's head, and First Officer Coleman gasps for air. 
John Pratt and Vern Bell then try to lift the first officer out of the snow, but they can't get him to budge. The snow's too hard and compacted. It's like ice. So instead, they get more empty luggage and place it around the broken windscreen to shelter the cockpit from the cold wind, build a little wall for the first officer. After attending to a few more injured passengers, it's close to 3 a.m., and John and Vern decide to sit down and take a rest. Passengers start singing Christmas carols to try and calm down and keep hope alive. The light in the cabin begins to dim, but an exit light remains on throughout the entire night. Over the late night hours, more moans and the occasional pleading passengers overheard in the cabin. A Lord help us, please save us is uttered, or a semi-delirious injured passenger lets out a groan. First Officer Coleman at one moment pleads for help getting free from the snow, but everyone in the cabin's too exhausted to move. The cockpit's pitch black, and First Officer Coleman is surrounded by hard snow, almost like ice. At another moment during the early morning hours, a passenger towards the back of the cabin says, Hey, I think this lady's passed away. A passenger named Mary Kay Harden had a broken vertebrae in her neck and had died. The night slowly passes on as blizzard winds howl outside. At 6 a.m., passengers hear what sounds like a machine in the distance. John Pratt knocks a suitcase that's been blocking the emergency window out of the way, and a heap of snow falls into the cabin. As he pulls himself up and out of the window, John sees two headlights in the distance. A snow cat, which almost looks like a mini tank used for traveling over deep snow, is headed towards them. Members of the Civil Air Patrol, Jerry Alsom, Don Niekirk, Steve Poulsen from Rocky Mountain Rescue, and Dave Lindau, driver and owner of the Snowcat and owner of a restaurant in Steamboat Springs, are all inside the Snowcat, and they radio over to the rescue base camp that they've located the crash site. More rescue workers would show up on more Snowcats as the morning went along. First Officer Coleman was dug out of the snow with a scrap piece of metal found inside Dave Lindau's Snowcat. First Officer Coleman says, so cold, so cold, when rescuers first arrived, so they gave him some hot coffee they had in a thermos. The men in the initial rescue team had to be very careful when digging out First Officer Coleman from the snow that surrounded him. Getting the First Officer free from the ice was very difficult. A foot of snow fell during the entire rescue effort. Passengers were loaded onto snow cats and driven down the mountain to a base camp where the survivors' injuries were quickly assessed, and then they were transferred into ambulances and taken to hospitals. First Officer Gary Coleman's brother, Don Coleman, was part of the rescue effort. Don had heard about Flight 217 going down on the nightly news and drove through the night with his friend Ron through terrible weather to be a part of the rescue team. First Officer Gary Coleman's blood temperature was 86 degrees when he got to the hospital. Doctors initially thought he wouldn't make it because blood becomes toxic when it cools. Captain Klompfenstein never regained consciousness after being taken away from the crash site. He passed away 70 hours after the accident. Both Captain Klompfenstein and passenger Mary Kay Harden were the only two fatalities from Flight 217. There were 20 survivors, 14 serious injuries, and six suffered minor injury. So what happened with Flight 217? We know that ice formed on its unprotected surfaces, making the plane heavier, changing the shape of the wing, which decreased lift. But was there anything else this plane was fighting? Was it struck by lightning? What was that blue flash of light First Officer Coleman saw to the right of the plane seconds before the crash? 
Well, after interviewing people in the area and taking a look at the meteorological evidence, investigators determined that, unknown to the pilots before takeoff or air traffic controllers on the ground that night, a mountain wave existed over the ridge of mountains just east of Steamboat Springs. It's basically a descending air mass that spills over rounded mountaintops causing rapid downdrafts. Usually for a mountain wave to form, there's three things. Perpendicular wind flow in relation to the mountain range, increased wind velocity with altitude, and a stable air mass layer. We know that on the night of December 4th, the winds were relatively calm on the ground at Steamboat Springs. However, as the plane ascended in altitude, strong winds existed at these higher altitudes. Along the ridgeline that night, winds were measured to be between 80 and 90 knots. So that night, there were basically two different air masses. One on the ground where winds were calm with unstable, warmer air, and another air mass at higher elevations where winds were very strong, the air mass was stable and moist. The report estimated that downdrafts of 500 feet per minute existed along the Victor 101 airway that night. So the pilots had to deal with flying through these clouds where at times severe icing was occurring. The ice made the aircraft heavier and changed the shape of the wing, which decreased lift. They had to deal with strong tailwinds when flying east, strong headwinds when they turned to fly west, but also Flight 217 was constantly being hammered once they were in these higher altitudes by these strong downdrafts from the mountain wave that neither they nor air traffic controllers on the ground knew existed before they took off. As for that flash of blue light that First Officer Coleman thought was possibly lightning, It turns out as Flight 217 was descending towards the ground above Buffalo Pass, the right wing of the plane clipped an 80-foot transmission tower. When the right wing struck the transmission tower, the 230,000-volt power line running through it lit up the night sky. This actually made power go out for some folks in Colorado and Wyoming for a few minutes because a circuit breaker was tripped and had to be reset. It also served as an important clue for the rescue team to find the plane. Some of the rescue members reasoned that the power outage seemed to correspond to the same time period that Denver Center lost communication with Flight 217. So when Dave Lindau, Jerry Alsom, Don Niekirk, and Steve Poulsen are driving around on the snowcat looking for the downed plane, they have it in the back of their minds to keep an eye out for the power lines, and eventually they find Flight 217 close to the power lines on Buffalo Pass. Another interesting aspect of the crash was that the plane didn't explode. Luckily, when the plane hit the ground, the right wing and right engine broke away from the plane on impact, and then the left wing and left engine broke off as it skidded across the terrain. The fuel was carried underneath the passenger cabin, but the main ignition source for a plane fire, the engines, had quickly separated from the rest of the plane. Also, it was good fortune that the oxygen tanks in the plane used by passengers and pilots to breathe above 10,000 feet didn't explode either. The NTSB performed its investigation of Flight 217 over the course of five months and released its report on May 3rd, 1979. In the report, it stated, The NTSB determines that the probable cause of this accident was severe icing and strong downdrafts associated with a mountain wave, which combined to exceed the aircraft's capability to maintain flight. Contributing to the accident was the captain's decision to fly into probable icing conditions that exceeded the conditions authorized by company directive. Now we have to ask, how did the crash of Flight 217 make flying safer? 
Well, the report went on to make two safety recommendations based upon the investigation and crash. First, survival training for crew members flying commuter airlines and mountainous terrain was needed. So now crew members are better equipped to deal with a similar survival situation in the future. Secondly, due to the extensive injuries to both pilots, the report called for mandatory installation of shoulder harnesses without exception by June 1, 1979 on flight crew seats. The FAA took the advice of the NTSB recommendation and mandated that all commercial airliners must have shoulder harnesses on flight crew seats. So that's how flying was made safer by Flight 217. Well, now it's time for our first interview. It's with our mystery guest, someone that had the unique perspective of being in the cockpit that night. I hope you guys enjoy it. Joining us now on PCPC is the first officer of Rocky Mountain Airways Flight 217, Gary Coleman. Gary, how are you doing? You know, fine. I'm relaxed. I'm sitting in my favorite chair, and I'm uh, recreating this evening in my mind. That's good. Um, uh, How's 2020 treating you so far? How are you dealing with this pandemic? Like everybody else, it's a brand new thing that's happening to all of us, and uh, we're all dealing with it a little differently, and it's starting to relax a little bit now, which all of us wanted to have happen. Yeah. Uh, when did you first become interested in aviation? Were you interested in aviation from a young age, or when did the bug bite you? <laughs> we uh, we climbed to the top of our corn crib back in Iowa and watched a crop duster, and that was the start. Oh, yeah? That's interesting. So you were interested as a child, huh? Well, I was, I think I was like 12, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then we went to uh, CU, to Boulder, Colorado, and my brother Bill bought an airplane, bought a Cessna 150. We started a flight school, or mm-hmm. a flight club, rather, and it just progressed from there. Uh, I ended up being more interested in the in the flying part of it than either of my brothers, and I just kind of continued on with it. When did you start working for Rocky Mountain Airways? Two years before the accident. So like 1976-ish? Yeah, 76-ish, right. What type of planes did you fly over your career? Well, let's see. We, I owned a 182. I owned a Cessna 340. Uh, we owned some Navajos. We started a little airline that uh, I realized how uh, incredibly difficult that was, and we quickly reversed ourselves on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Uh, I don't know how these guys do it. It's a, it's a daunting task to run an airline. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the flight that you made that day, um, you're, talk about your day that day. I think in the book it said that you first went over to your parents' house and hung out for a little bit on your way to work. Flight 217 wasn't your first flight of the day, right? You had a couple more flights before then, right? We had two flights before that that, that we turned back and, and landed back in Denver. And this was kind of an evening flight and looked like everything was calming down. And we, we, uh, we were at, uh, 16,000, I think on Victor 101 going over. And it just took us forever to get there. We we had like a 70 knot headwind, but there was no turbulence. Mm -hmm. And when we descended into steamboat, we went through a, a small layer of icing. Uh, that we thought, well, maybe we'll stay in Steamboat for the night. Just or n- No pilot likes icing. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's just a very, very, uh, <laughs> it just keeps growing, shall we say. Flight 216 is the flight that goes from Denver to Steamboat, and that 
takes a while because of the strong headwinds and then you did encounter some icing but then you're on the ground and you you break some of the ice off the plane is that right right there was a little ice on the aircraft we we de-iced it with broomsticks very sophisticated <laughs> we uh we're a small small airline we did not have a de-icing station in the out stations mm-hmm. but it, it we had all the ice off the aircraft and we were going to stay in steamboat that night. We walked out, and of course, being young, uh, young pilots and ready for anything, the moon and stars came out. Mm-hmm. We go, wait a minute. There's no, there's no reason not to fly back to Denver. Yeah, that makes sense. So we, uh, <clears throat> the the route was we go west from Steamboat to Hayden. You do a procedure turn. And you're climbing the whole time. Well, we had this amazing headwind, so we thought there was no problem to get to 10,000 feet. Mm-hmm. And then uh, as we came back, uh, as we did our turn, came back, of course, our ground speed really increased with the, with the tailwind. And we flew over steamboat, and then there was a small layer of clouds right over the ridge, a little bit uh, east and south of steamboat. Mm-hmm. That's where our Victor 101 goes. And from then on, we had a hard time climbing, and there was no turbulence. Yeah. It was a very, very unusual uh, downdraft that we encountered. Just, Scotty and I kept looking at each other, and we, there's a waypoint called Cater Intersection that <clears throat> you have a, a an MEA, Minimum and route altitude. Mm-hmm. This is this is your minimum you have to be at. And this was sixteen thousand feet, and we were cleared for seventeen. I don't know why it was seventeen. That's the wrong. That's the wrong uh, elevation going east. But that's where we were cleared on our flight plan. Mm-hmm. And we could not get out of thirteen. And we kept looking at each other and going south to Kremlin. We had a mountain and. Uh, a mountain between us going north there was an airport that was unlit and we weren't sure about we have no reporting areas up there so we thought well we just were at steamboat steamboat was clear we'll go back to steamboat that's all rational to me (laughs) we thought it was (laughs) yeah so you you decided you're going towards denver can't climb you know, if you keep on going forward, you're stuck at 13,000 feet and it's not safe. So you're like, we got to go back to Steamboat. And on your way back to Steamboat is when you saw the cloud with the stripes. Uh, yes. I, I was flying on the way back. Well, when you make a turn in an aircraft, especially at a lower speed, you lose some vertical component of your lift. Mm-hmm. It it transforms into a, into a side vector. And we lost another hundred feet when we got into a little more icing mm-hmm. and we were, we were in and out of the clouds. So we'd hit a little icing and then the airplane would take care of it. No problem. And then it was a real long period of time there when the moon and st- moon was out. I looked up from the instrument. You're always looking down at the instruments when you're flying. And I looked up and here was this <laughs> black cloud with white stripes in it. Oh and God. It was, it was like a pillow. Yeah. It was like a and I said, Scott, have you ever seen that? And he looked at it and said, Shucky darn. Oh, man. 
He said, shucky darn, my airplane. Yeah. <laughs> and and that, there was an expletive in there somewhere. Yeah. What, what were the white stripes? Do you know in retrospect what those were? Oh, it was the ice in, in the cloud. Oh, my God. And when we, when we flew into that, it threw us forward in the airplane, both Scott and I. And you, you kind of fly. Part of flying is, is how your derriere reacts to the seat. Mm-hmm. And, our, and the derriere moved forward in the seat when we flew into the cloud. Oh man! So we it was it was very very dense, and then then what happened is the ice. We, we flew a de-ice airplane. Mm-hmm. A de-ice, a de-ice airplane has boots. The boots pop the ice off the front of the wing. You know, the, the part part that hits the air first. An anti-ice airplane is your main jets, what you fly on all the time, and that's a hot wing that never that never has any ice form on it. Yeah. So what happened with the de-ice airplane, the, the ice was so severe that it got, went beyond the boots on the wing, the top and bottom. Mm-hmm. So when, when the boots popped the ice off, we had a ridge of ice on the top of the wing and a ridge on the bottom, which further destroyed our lift. Yeah. Changed the shape of your wing, and it made the aircraft heavier. So it was hard to... <laughs> It was, yeah, it was a, a multi, a multi-dimensional nasty. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> one thing that in the book it says is that as the plane's coming down, you kind of have no choice at that point because the plane's just collecting ice and can't climb even with the throttles um, fully pushed forward. But, but at the last minute, you had a choice between a dark area or a clear area. Do you want to talk about that? Well, in all of flight training, uh, have you ever have you ever uh, done any flight training? No, not at all. Here's one of the one of the rules, one of the little rules that you you go. If you have a uh, if you are going to have an emergency landing, light is always better than dark. Light green is better than dark green. Light brown is better than dark brown. In this place, it was black is worse than white. Ah, uh, pretty pretty <laughs> strong contrast there. Yeah, yeah, and and what happened was is as soon as as soon as we did see the ground after we hit the the uh, high tension tower with the right wing, we did start a right turn, but we weren't turning fast enough because mm-hmm. there was a dark spot in front of us and there was light to the right, and I know Scotty and I. I hit the. I know I hit the right rudder, and I'm pretty sure Scotty hit it because the airplane continued its turn and continued its roll. So we went in kind of on our right side. Well, it made the difference of uh, at least putting you uh, put you in deep snow, which wasn't good for you, but it was good for a lot of the passengers, I imagine, as opposed to going in the dark area. Oh yeah, the dark area would have been uh, a, a different result. Yeah. So, did you, uh, as far as your memory of the accident goes, when when does it when do you kind of when does it kind of fade away? I know in the book it said that you couldn't recollect a lot of what happened post crash, but um, you remember going into that clear area, and then is it kind of over after that? Yeah, I remember that. I remember uh, waking up and being angry because I couldn't do anything, and then I would go back into unconsciousness, and then. Uh, then I remember waking up in the 
and the and the guys were chipping ice out. John and Vern got me finally got me uncovered in the snow. I was buried in the snow for at least two, maybe three hours, completely buried with my left hand out. And they, the, the, my hand moved when they went up to the front of the cockpit, and that's the only reason they knew I was alive. And they dug me out. And then the next thing I remember clearly was the guys chipping ice out between my legs with a with an iron bar to get me out of the airplane. Yeah. And I, I looked at them and said, you know, I don't want to live through this, guys. Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you made it that far, it's like, don't mess it up then. Um. Another touching part is, I think, if correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you were removed from the aircraft, and then when you you were put on the snowcat, taken back to the station, and once you were at the station, you were put in an ambulance, and your brother hopped in the ambulance with you. Is that right? My brother got in a sleeping bag with me. This is what this is. This is gonna choke me up a little bit, and I didn't. I never knew that he got in a sleeping bag, and I think he enjoyed. He was kind of slapping me around, keeping me awake till I got to the hospital so I wouldn't go to sleep. I know. When I read that part in the book, I started crying, too. I was like, oh. Plus, he, he kept on, uh, I think he, he said his account was that he kept on asking you questions, just trying to make you talk about <laughs> what happened. And you, maybe you thought he was actually wondering what happened, but he was really just trying to keep you awake. He was trying to keep me awake, and that was... Uh, that was a totally new thing. When the book came out, I, I had no idea that that had happened. That's amazing. Did um, How long were you in the hospital for? Uh, Kremling, I was there for probably, I think, two nights. Uh, I, I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but uh, they pronounced me dead at the table. They covered me up because they, there was no heartbeat to speak of, no blood pressure. And I was covered by a sheet, and I heard the nurses talking. And in the, in the meantime, I had gone up and seen an uncle that passed away when I was five, and my first dog. Mm-hmm. It didn't seem unusual at all. It was uh, very, very nice. And I heard the nurses talking, and, and there, this poor guy had died, and he was young, and he, said, and he was one of the pilots. And my, my wife and I went back there. Uh, you know, a lot of times you think you say something, you imagine you said something, and that it kind of goes to reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, surely I didn't say this, but <laughs> I said I had my wife ask the question to the nurses, and they said, uh, "What happened when he, uh, when you, when he realized that you were talking about him?" And he, this is what I said: When the pharaohs were dying they would pile warm concubines around them to keep in their body heat. I said, I think that would work with nurses. Oh man, that's pretty witty. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I actually did say that. And I, I had to, I had to have my wife prove that I said that. I'm going, <laughs> no idea, no idea where that came from. It's a, that's uh, very witty. You're sharp as a tack, even after a plane crash. Um, so, after um, you recovered, how long were you, you were at Kremlin for a while, and then were you transferred to another place? I was transferred to uh, hospital in Denver. Um, I can't remember. I remember the doctor's name was Doctor Horner that uh, um, operated on my left hand. They were going to cut my ha- left hand off because it was so badly frostbit, mm-hmm. and and uh, he he saved my hand and he decompressed the nerves that uh, 
in my hand, so I have a pretty functional left hand. That's good. And and they, and they, I was in pretty good shape by the time I went to Denver. I was coherent. And I was talking. I still had a lot of cuts and bruises, shall we say? Yeah. Did uh so afterwards once you were released from the hospital, I imagine like any traumatic event, this had a effect on you for a while. Did it not? I had I had uh, nightmares for probably half a year, and and it was not your normal nightmare. It was about a tree moving from right to left in front of me. Mm-hmm. And and that was my nightmare. I wake up in a cold sweat, and my, finally, uh, my wife and I were just uh, starting to date. They said, "Let's go, let's go up to the crash site and camp." And we went up there, and I saw the tree. I saw the tree that uh, uh, that we that was having the nightmare on, and I I never had the nightmare again. Oh, it says a lot about. I mean, that's a lot about what we deal with in the podcast is fear of flying and kind of confronting things that you're afraid of and it seems like exposing yourself to that tree exposing yourself revisiting that horrible place where that traumatic event occurred might have helped you out yeah i know it did i know it helped uh and if i had planned on seeing that tree i mean what a silly thing to have a nightmare about a tree but that it was a real thing yeah, you definitely had some associations with it. You probably saw the tree and then experienced a awful night. And I imagine any of us would probably make similar connections. Well, what a, what a treat to talk to you. This is, uh, uh, like I said, I read this book over two hours, and uh, it, it's, it is very, very well uh, chronographed of, of that evening. It's just a... And, and the and the kids, these were kids in the airplane. These were kids of nineteen to twenty four that took over and and saved everybody and got clothes out of the out of the baggage compartment. And uh, wow, what a what an what an amazing group, uh, unplanned, but what an amazing group. Yeah, definitely. I think. One reason that this story was attractive to me and why I want to talk to you is I feel like we could all use a story like this right now. I think there's a, you know, this story of people in there that are 19 and 20 and don't know each other, but still sacrifice for each other and worked hard for each other and put other people's uh, health and well-being above their own health and well-being. Um, I think that's an inspiring story that I hope a lot of young people here today and um any way that you can in the in the current environment we're in if you can pitch in and you know put somebody else's well-being ahead of your own i think is a pretty pretty noble thing to do well it's noble and it's rewarding at the same time it's just it's just it makes you feel good <laughs> yeah and there's there's nothing better than making yourself feel good by helping somebody else so it's a it's a tiny bit of selfishness, but it's at the same time it's a it's a lot of giving. So it's it's uh, it's it's both sides of the coin, but uh, they're, they're both sides very rewarding. Yeah. Did, did, so you went back to flying afterwards, right? You went back to work for Rocky Mountain. I flew for about another six months. Uh, I went to the Dash Seven, which is a four-engine aircraft, pressurized, 
Mm-hmm. And one of my problems was the my left hand had really no brand new skin on it, so I had no friction. You have little whirls in your in your fingers that, that give your hands friction, so you can grab hold of things. And every time I grabbed hold of the controls, my hands would slip on them. Yeah. <laughs> That's- and so I, I got over that, and I finally I decided, well, wait a minute, let's. Uh, Let's reevaluate this and maybe go into a family business here. One big thing I wanted to say to you, too, is that I think your story, even though these kids, uh, we talked about the 19 and 20 year olds that went out and helped do things. I think your story of, you know, uh, dealing with a traumatic event is not easy. And the fact that you looked it square in the eye and um, went through uh, time to overcome it and led a happy and fruitful life is pretty amazing. Well, there's, there's two options. You have, you move on and, 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 and do things the way you think is correct, or you, you mope and, and it's just, just not, not a good thing if you, if you do it the other way. Yeah, I agree. Just got to get back to living. Because we all have to deal with traumatic events. All of us are going to have to deal with family members and people that we're close to going on. And if you can just process it and move on and have the happiest life you can, you're doing. Well, just, you just got to, you got to help a little bit. Somehow or other, you got to help. I, one of the things that, uh, that, that, that I, I don't know that I could say enjoy, but one of the things that makes me feel really good is when someone loses a loved one and I'm at, I'm involved with the, the group and I go in there and somebody is really having a hard time with it. I, I tell the story about uh, seeing my uncle and seeing my first dog. And I said, that's what happened to me. I don't mean I'm not preaching. I'm not doing anything else, but that's what happened to me. And I'm pretty sure you'll see him later on. I thought that aspect of the story is pretty interesting that in that moment you said you weren't that uncomfortable with that no it was very nice well, that, <laughs> well I mean, but 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 a, a little bit alarming when i realized where i was <laughs> yeah well you came back and you uh had an excellent life and brought a lot of people joy and i appreciate you talking with us today what a treat thank you so much for uh for having me on this podcast and and this whole thing has been uh, very cathartic for me and for my family and for everyone involved in this whole thing. We, we all get together about once every five years or so, and it's, it's good for all of us. Yeah. It's, well, it was a pleasant time to talk and um, tell your family we said hi, and I'm happy that you're out there making people's lives better, and hopefully we all take away from this that it pays to help people. It makes you feel good. I like that line from you. It makes you feel good. (laughs) Thank you again for for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Gary. Well, fellow flyers, that was First Officer Gary Coleman from Flight 217. He's a good man. We appreciate him hanging out with us and sharing his story. Now it's time for our second interview with retired Delta Captain and author Harrison Jones. Today on PCPC, we are lucky enough to be joined by Harrison Jones, the author of Miracle on Buffalo Pass, a book on the story of Flight 217. How are you holding up during this strange time for the planet, Harrison? 
Oh, it's really strange, isn't it? It's it's uh, kind of unusual to look up in the sky and see no contrails these days. Yeah. Do you remember when you first heard of the crash of Flight 217? Was it something that grabbed your interest right away? What was it that made you really connect to the event and write a book about it? Um, actually, I heard about Flight 217 um, maybe a month after it happened. I was uh, flying for Delta Airlines at the time mm-hmm. and, a mem- and a member of the uh, pilot union, ALPA. And Alpa puts out a magazine every month for the pilots, and there was an article in the magazine um, about a month after that crash that described uh, Flight 217 and what had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I discounted it at the time. You know, it was just a, another article and another incident that was interesting. But then um, in two, uh, 2017, I got an email on my website from uh, Kelly Coleman, who is uh, Gary Coleman's daughter. And she was telling me the story about her father and wondering if it would be interesting for a book. And that's that's uh, that was the birth of the project. One thing from reading your book is I feel like you contacted a lot of people that were involved in this crash. You were talking to Gary Coleman, the co-pilot. You talked to a lot of the survivors. You talked to a lot of the rescue team. I thought it was very thorough. Uh, thank you. It was. It was very interesting. Uh, my initial contact, of course, was with Kelly and Gary and Gary's wife, Debbie, um, to get the basic um, information for to start the story. But uh, with their help, uh, the four of us were able to use uh, uh, social media to find a lot of people mm-hmm. that were involved. And um, we went from there. But it was uh, it was an interesting project. You said earlier um, when we were talking that you had – you were struck by the fact that all of them had a pretty similar account to what happened. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. I was I was pleasantly surprised, um, especially with the rescue team, uh, that each one of them that I talked to were uh, telling almost exactly the same story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, was, I was afraid that there was going to be some embellishment or maybe some egos involved or competitiveness or uh, some factor like that, but it wasn't. They're, they're just very down-to-earth people and uh, all very honest and, and told exactly the same story, which was very refreshing. Yeah, it kind of lets you know that you're getting the truthful story if everybody has the same account. That's true. It really is. And um, the passengers were similar in their in, in the interviews that I did with them. Uh, there was very little difference in uh, their stories also as far as what actually happened and of course their experience was individual but but uh, they remembered the events pretty much the same also Mm -hmm. from what i gathered from reading reading your book the ntsb report on the accident it seems as though the crash was almost unpreventable seems like once the pilots were in the sky they did everything they could to keep the plane in the air there was one error it was the decision to fly at all is that correct to you or do you have a different take no, I think that's pretty much accurate. Um, their decision to fly, of course, uh, they had just came in to that airport from Denver and they were returning to Denver. So they had just flown through that area. So they had a pretty much uh, a pretty good idea of what the weather was like. And uh, the decision to take off, um, I guess, could be questionable in, in some people's mind. But uh, as pilots, I think they, they were pretty confident that they were going to be able to do that without much of a problem. Yeah, and they also got no hint that this mountain wave was going to be awaiting them. They thought, we might have to fly through some ice, but our de-icers are working fine, and we just flew through that. 
area and made it. If anything, it was kind of hard because we had these, you know, uh, headwinds instead of tailwinds. Uh, that's correct. And um, the mountain way was unforecast. And, you know, the icing conditions, I think the weather reported said something about light icing or possible icing or something like that. But they had first-hand experience with just flying through that area. So, um I don't. I don't think many pilots would question their decision to take off. Uh, the mm-hmm. public might, but um, once they were in the air, they were they were pretty much committed to to the to the situation that came up. Yeah. One interesting thing. I think I, I might be recalling this incorrectly. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But I think someone in your book said Flight 217 was basically at one point no longer a plane. It was just a giant ice box flying through the sky because it had collected so much ice. I thought that was kind of an interesting. Um, analogy to use. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I think that's pretty accurate. But uh, when ice forms on an airplane, it, it, it gives you two problems. Number one, it adds a lot of weight to the airplane, so it makes it harder to, to gain altitude and, and uh, reduces the performance. But the other factor is it changes the shape of the wing. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, that, of course, reduces the performance, too. So the, those two factors pretty much made it a flying icebox, I think. Flying icebox, then it hits the mountain wave, and there's just no way to keep it in the sky, unfortunately. But they did a good job well, of at least directing it to a safe place. You know, if they hadn't made that last calculation, they could have ended up in the trees or something. Uh, that's true. Yeah, Gary Gary uh, related that at the very last, uh, very last second, they... they got a little bit of visibility and were able to, to guide the airplane towards a, a snow field rather than a, a stand of trees. Yeah. So how did you, uh, you said you were a Delta, retired Delta captain. How did you like working as an airline pilot? Which, uh, which planes did you fly? Um, I started with Delta in 1976, and uh, I flew the DC-9, the 727, um, the DC-8, um, the MD-88, the 757, 767, and I retired flying the MD-11. Ah, so you flew a lot of them. That's pretty impressive. Right, yeah, it was. It was, it was, uh, it was interesting, and it was very rewarding. I enjoyed the career, for sure. Did you, how does it work? Do you have consistent routes that you fly, or is it always changing? Um, it varies uh, depending on mostly on your seniority. Uh, if you're a senior pilot in your category, you can pretty much pick your trips and your days to work. But if you're a junior pilot in your category, uh, you don't have as many choices and wind up flying reserve a lot of the time, Yeah, which means, which means you're on call and uh, you, you go where they tell you to go when they call. Yeah. Did you have, I'm, I'm sure it changed with time, but did you have any particular places you liked flying to? Like when you showed up to work and they're like, you're going here today where you're like, sweet. Um, most of the, the layovers, the desirable layovers were usually in the bigger cities. Uh, Delta flew to a lot of small cities too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so the desirable layovers were usually the, uh, the larger cities because there was more things to do, you know, in your spare time when you were there. Yeah, that makes sense. Obviously a lot of people find plane crashes to be of interest. It always seems to dominate the news when they occur. Are they of heightened level of interest to airline pilots as well? I mean, when you go to flight schools, do they review crashes from the past and the lessons, or do they, is, is that something that not really occurs? Um, yeah. when uh, Well, there's two, two types of training in the airline business. You have initial training when you first check out on an airplane, and then you have annual training they call recurrent training. 
And uh, the recurrent training, when you go back once a year, um, a lot of times they, we do analyze recent accidents and decide, you know, what went wrong, what went right, and what could have been done better and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, I feel like your book was an important document. I feel like uh, there's a lot to it's entertaining and interesting read, but it also has a story of humanity, a story of her- heroism. And I uh, appreciate the fact that you wrote that book. I hope people read it. Again, it's called Miracle on Buffalo Pass. And this is Harrison Jones. I appreciate you talking with us today. Thank you very much, Michael. I enjoy your, uh, your podcast very much. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. That was retired captain and author Harrison Jones. It's great talking to both those guys. They were both interesting and had compelling stories. Very nice of them to hang out with us. Yeah, absolutely. I have to say, I think this might be one of my favorite episodes yet. Yeah, it was really an interesting story head to toe. It was interesting getting the backstory of what happened earlier in the day, what happened to the plane, and the rescue story was really interesting as well. What did you think of the story of Flight 217, Tess? Well, I thought this was a really fascinating story. And one of the reasons why I think it was such a well-rounded episode was because we have these really vivid details from Harrison Jones's book, Miracle on Buffalo Pass, that really made you feel like you were there, mm-hmm. um, combined with Gary Coleman's account, which is just absolutely incredible. Yeah, definitely. Um, some of the details that stuck out to me were just those those two young boys who kind of took control of the plane and were building shelters for the pilots mm-hmm. and gathering clothing and um, making everyone feel like everything was going to be okay. Yeah, as comfortable as they could be. And the eight-month-old baby who had this kind woman taking care of him for the night while his mother was unconscious. Yeah. And, um, the wedding dress that was used to plug up the plane and the shampoo bottle used to prop up the cargo door. Yeah. There's just so many interesting details. Yeah. I like those details too. I feel like that helps you really visualize what happened. Even when you brought up that little shampoo bottle, it seems so innocent, but it really just kind of like puts you in the place of what's going on in that rear cargo hold that even just having a little light in that moment makes a big difference. I also was really touched by how Gary's brother drove through the night with his buddy to go be part of the safety effort and Mm -hmm. got into his brother's sleeping bag and was trying to ask him questions to stay awake. Even just talking about it now makes me teary. It was just an incredible story. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It was definitely touching and there was so much detail that you felt like you were there. I guess the, uh, in regards to the NTSB report, there was only one real question, which was, was there any way to prevent the crash? Was the NTSB right for blaming the captain about flying? What do you think about that? Do you think uh, it was improper to fly that night or were they just didn't have the information that this thing was awaiting them in the skies above? I agree with what Harrison Jones said about that. I think that they had just flown through those skies um, in a previous flight, so they had every reason to believe that this flight would be no different. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it seems like the weather is bad all day, and uh, they flew up in Flight 212, go into Steamboat, and had to land back in Denver. And uh, when they went to Steamboat, they encountered some icing, yes. 
But these are pilots flying in the Rockies during the winter. People want to go ski. And if you aren't going to fly unless the weather is perfect, then you're probably never going to fly during the winter time. So it doesn't see, it seems like they were missing information more than getting information and ignoring it. So when I read that in the NTSB probable cause, I was like, yeah, I guess they have to say this. But the captain didn't get any warning from Denver Center that there was a mountain wave and massive downdrafts awaiting them up there. It seemed like once they had made the decision to fly and were in the sky and got up in that territory, there was nowhere for them to go east, nowhere to go west where they weren't going to be in trouble. Right, exactly. It seems like it was a combination of that the downdraft and that mountain wave with extreme icy conditions. Yeah, it was already going to be super tough if those downdrafts and the mountain wave didn't exist. So I think that they were given the, they were on the ground in steamboat. They looked up and saw the moon and stars. It seemed like weather was getting better. They called to Denver Center, said, how are things going? The forecast says it's safe to fly. They approved them to fly. So to, at the end say, hey, it's the captain's fault seems kind of like uh, something I don't agree with. I completely agree with not agreeing with it, Michael. <laughs> nice. Miracle on Buffalo Pass by Harrison Jones is available on Amazon. If For any of you interested in diving deeper on this crash, there's a ton of personal stories from passengers and a lot more information about the rescue effort that saved the passengers on Flight 217. I know I've only mentioned four of the rescuers that were in the first snowcat, but it was really a massive team effort of 50, 60 individuals that worked together to save the day. Some rescuers set up the operations center, some police officers radioed communications and coordinated efforts, some private citizens drove through dangerous blizzard conditions and icy roads with snowcats on trailers behind them, all in an effort to pitch in and help save a lot of people that they didn't even know personally. There are many people on the crash site on snowmobiles helping load victims onto snowcats and giving aid to the wounded. So it's definitely worth your time to read. Again, that's Miracle on Buffalo Pass by Harrison Jones, and you can buy it on Amazon. And thank you so much to Gary for being our guest as well. He was just such an inspiration, and it was really an honor to have him on the podcast. He yeah. seems like a really cool guy that I would want to have dinner with. Yeah, definitely. First Officer Coleman had a concussion, internal injuries, frostbite, and several cuts, but he returned to flying with Rocky Mountain Airways in the fall of 1979 and ended up marrying a flight attendant that he was working with, Debbie Link, that also worked for Rocky Mountain Airways. The day of the crash, he visited his parents' house, and he told them not to worry because he had his wool socks and pants on. Those warm wool clothes might have saved his life. Wow. Whatever the uh, brand was, he could become their spokesperson. Yeah, it might save your life. <laughs> Luann and Jeff Mercer, the couple that was headed to Florida to get married, both recovered from their injuries. On May 16th, 1979, they were married in a Denver courthouse, and Luann wore the famous wedding dress that was used to plug up a hole in the plane. The dress was clean and repaired by her father that owned a dry cleaning business. Oh, I love that her father was the one to clean clean it off. That yeah. feels very symbolic. That seems like like the Swiss Army knife of wedding dresses. Yeah, absolutely. If it can survive a plane crash, it can probably survive anything. Yeah, survive the marriage. <laughs> can plug up a hole if you get in a plane crash. It's it's got many purposes. The eight-month-old baby on the plane, Matt Knotts, is now a certified flight instructor and a pilot for a regional airline. Another interesting highlight about Matt Knotts is that his father worked for the power company helping to construct the power lines that Flight 217, the plane his eight-month-old son, would eventually run into. 
Metnot said that for a while he flew in Alaska and at times he would be flying through low clouds or icing conditions and he would imagine Captain Scott Klopfenstein was sitting in the cockpit with him, watching over him, keeping him safe. Wow, I feel like there are a lot of little coincidences that are coming up um, as you share these details with us, Michael. Yeah, one thing we didn't talk about yet was uh, first... Officer Gary Coleman's like out of body experience too. And he said he was in the hospital. He went up and saw his uncle that had passed and an old uh, pet. And he said he felt very comfortable. I thought that was a kind of interesting point. I know. I really um, latched on to that as well. I thought that that was very uplifting and, and gave me hope. Yeah. Uh, There's a memorial displaying artifacts from the crash of Flight 217 at the Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum, located on the former Lowry Air Force Base in Denver, Colorado. Pieces of the aircraft, metal from the frame of baby Matt Knott's stroller, and Luann Mercer's wedding dress are all on display. In 2008, when the display was first shown, it was 30 years after the accident, and many survivors came to the ceremony and exchanged hugs and stories. Oh, that's so sweet. President Jimmy Carter signed a certificate of merit awarded by the American Red Cross to recognize rescue team members Don Niekirk and Jerry Alsom for their efforts. Both men were quite humble and insisted that it was a team effort and they didn't deserve to be singled out. John Pratt, the 20-year-old Eagle Scout that took over caring for the wounded immediately after the crash, received a whole host of awards, including a personal letter from President Ford and an FAA Extraordinary Service Award. Wow. Well, it seems like this crash really affected all the people that survived it in very different ways, but it certainly had an impact. Yeah. Now, even thinking about First Officer Gary Coleman, I like the fact that this guy dealt with a horrible, horrible experience. And it's easy when you have a traumatic experience to just never get over it and always be hung up on it. And just from talking to the guy, the guy's got a happy life. He moved on. He's mm-hmm. ta- he can talk about this experience. He didn't let it shut down his life. He still has led a very fruitful life. And that's pretty inspiring. Absolutely. Yeah, it was really inspiring. Even the baby who uh, went on to become a pilot later on, you have to wonder if you know, knowing that he survived a a plane crash at such a young age, even if he doesn't remember it, entered into his thinking at all when he was making the decision of what to do with his life. I imagine so. I imagine for a long time he was known as the baby that survived the plane crash on this, you know, Rocky Mountain Airways, this commuter airline that dealt with uh, high elevations. And he's like, maybe I should be committed to doing that with my life. Yeah, it's in my blood. Captain Scott Klopfenstein's mother, Virginia, and sister Jane said of him, Scott always wanted to be a pilot. He made this announcement when he was just eight years old. Scott loved life. He always had a smile and a kind word. He was really quite special because of the kind of person he was. We miss him every day. We know that we will see Scott again. Well, he was a good man, and I'm sure that he had a lot to do with the fact that there were only two casualties on that plane. Yeah, he hit the rudder right at the last minute and sent it towards the snow instead of the trees and in many ways gave up his life so all those other people could live long happy lives yeah even the fact that you know he broke both of his arms from pulling on the control column as hard as he did made me think what else might he have been doing with his body at the time of the crash that might have contributed to his death, but ultimately may have saved lives. Yeah, it seems like he was trying to control the plane to the end. He wasn't worried about his own well-being. He was Mm -hmm. just like committed to keeping that plane on a path to where it'd be best for the passengers. Right. 
Well, Tess, I think that's going to do it for Rocky Mountain Airways Flight 217. We only have one story from the world of airlines news this week because the episode was running a little long. Delta Airlines has announced that they're speeding up the retirement of their MD-88 and MD-90 aircraft. June 2nd will be the last day these planes will be flying through the skies. One final flight for the MD-90 will take it from Houston to Atlanta. And one final flight for the MD-88 will take it from Washington, D.C. to Atlanta. From there, both planes will be shipped to a long retirement in Blytheville, Arkansas. These jets joined the Delta fleet in 1987, and the retirement was sped up due to the decline in air travel due to the ongoing pandemic. The Airbus A220 will be taking the place of these older planes. What do you think, Tess? Are you brokenhearted at the news that these MD-80 planes are facing early retirement? No, I'm happy for the MD-80s. I hope they have a great retirement. I hope they have a comfortable life. I'm a little bit surprised that they chose Arkansas and not maybe Florida, but um, more power to them. Arkansas is probably cheaper. I have a special place in my heart for McDonnell Douglas. I grew up in St. Louis and used to see McDonnell Douglas buildings all over the place. I remember in school, a number of kids had parents that worked for McDonnell Douglas. So it's sad, but hopefully they have a nice retirement and enjoy their golden years. I'd like to visit a retired aircraft uh, yard someday. Yeah, definitely. I wonder what kind of games they play with each other. A lot of bridge, a lot of bridge. (laughs) All right. There's one more story in airline news. Why? Because I know you all love this part of the show. American Airlines is now the major U.S. airline that services the shortest route when they added a Vail, Colorado to Aspen, Colorado regularly scheduled flight. The trip from Vail to Aspen, a whooping 29 miles. Flight time is 35 minutes for 29 miles and a one-way ticket's $46. Airlines across the United States are bending over backwards to try and comply with the government aid packages that have required them to keep servicing all the destinations they serviced prior to the pandemic. American Airlines has a route for one of its planes five days a week that goes from Dallas to Vail, then to Aspen, then to Montrose, Colorado, before going back to Dallas. Feels more like a Greyhound bus schedule than an airline schedule, eh, Tess? Yeah, it seems like a short plane ride, but um, hopefully it'll make people's lives in Colorado a little easier if they um, can't drive through snow or whatever. Yeah. You have no idea how many times I'm in Vail in May and need to get to Aspen. This new route is going to help me out a whole ton. These days, all I'm actually concerned about is getting to the grocery store and back every two weeks. So I don't know if I need to get from Vail to uh, Aspen that much. Well, it would be nice if you did. Well, I think that's going to do it for our show today. Thanks to First Officer Gary Coleman a ton and retired Captain Harrison Jones for chatting with us. You guys were super cool, and I wish you guys the best. Thanks to Tess for uh, being on the podcast today. Tess, you want to say anything to anybody? Uh, Thank you so much for having me, Michael. This episode was really incredible, and I can't wait for people to listen to it. Uh, Thank you to our Patreon crew. If you go to patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod, you can be a Patreon member as well. Thanks for the reviews and saying hello on Twitter. Go to planecrashpod.com where you can check out merch and the website. I hope you're all battling your little hearts out there for your communities and friends. As Gary Coleman says, help someone because it makes you feel good and people need your help. Make the world a better place because you exist. I'm going to try and work hard and get you guys a new episode as soon as I can. I love you guys. Hang in there. Keep up the fight. and We'll talk soon. Bye-bye.